0: to be able to be here today to share with you some of the things that God has been teaching me. For those who don't know me, I've been attending here for about a year and a half. I was born into a faith-filled home. I believed at a young age. My family went to a Baptist church until my dad passed away when I was eight. We then began attending a Christian and Missionary Alliance church right near our home in Toronto. I attended Canadian Bible College in Regina for four years. <laughs> I fought out and then I went to serve as, for eight years as children's pastor at Faith Boys Church in, in Thornhill. Then I became a stay at home mom. I've attended a Baptist, Alliance, Pentecostal, multi denominational, and non denominational churches. I've attended and led women's studies and care groups that brought together many faith groups from Baptist, Alliance, Catholic, Pentecostal, Salvation Army, United Church, and unchurch backgrounds. I've been single, married, widowed, remarried. I have three kids. I've also dealt with infertility. I've experienced physical and emotional abuse and mental illnesses of loved ones. These are just a few of the ups and downs that I've been on in my path to where I am now. One of the hardest things, <laughs> one of the hardest things I find about speaking is how to start. Um, I've been praying and gathering my notes for weeks. And last Monday I knew it was time to pull it all together. So I started the day on a walk with Jesus and I just asked him to show me how he was going to have me start this message. And I was walking down a dirt road that I often walk down. And I met a Mennonite woman who was walking towards me. Um, I'd been walking past a field of wheat, and it might have been barley, and I asked her to confirm what it was because my mom was raised on a farm. And when we were little, we would drive by fields and she'd have us name what is growing in that field because she said she did not want to raise city kids. (laughs) I still don't remember them all, but whatever. This lovely Mennonite woman confirmed that it was indeed a wheat field and added that it reminded her of Ruth in the Bible. And I agreed and walked on thinking, well, that was random. (laughs) And I felt like Jesus said to me, you're kidding, right? (laughs) (laughs) You've never met anyone walking on this road before. And you talk about wheat or barley and Ruth. Sit on that for a minute. So I asked Jesus, well, do you want me to talk about the gleaning part or the threshing part? And he said, both. A spiritual journey is like Ruth picking up the grain. As we get closer and closer to Jesus, that grain is being threshed and winnowed. The things that aren't true are blown away like chaff, and you are left with what is true. That's the journey that each of us is on. Be aware that all of the things that we thought were true but have since come to realize that aren't, they are not, that's not wasted. God uses it to teach us humility and empathy and his patient faithfulness. My prayer for us this morning is that we will be stretched a little bit, that we will be willing to let God begin to crack open and shine light on some of the previous tel- previously tel- ideas and perceptions so that we can see what is true and to glimpse a little of just how big he is, how he relates to us, and how thrilled he is with us. That our understanding of the vastness of his love will be stretched beyond where it is now. Many years ago, I read a quote by Corrie Ken Boone that I've tried to follow, and that, quote. And that is, hold everything in your hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. It's taken me a lot of years to get to this point in my journey. I took the slow train, or maybe it was the scenic route. Some of you arrived here before me, and if so, let's rejoice together, even though we're not actually done yet, because there's always something new to learn. Some may still be on the way to this point, and we can rejoice together too. Because our sweet Jesus guides each of us along the path at just right pace. What I've learned so far is that I don't know much. I used to know much more than I do now. (laughs) Socrates wisely said, the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. Do I even want to know all the answers? No. How small would God have to be for me to fully understand him? I want to trust in Jesus, not in my ability to figure him out. I know that he will be faithful to lead me with what is true and not blow it all away. I'll wait. My youngest son, Jared, that we met this morning, when he was little he used to like to pour boxes of cereal onto the floor in front of the back pan, central back, in the kitchen, and then turn it on and watch it all disappear. <laughs> We went through a lot of cereal. <laughs> but God didn't like that. He will leave what is true, so I don't need to feel anxious. I've been freed from so many things I thought I knew that he is now blowing away like chaff, especially about God and what the Bible actually says about him, not what I thought I knew. An illustration that has helped me all my life is one that I learned in a small girl at daily vacation Bible school. They showed us a, a picture of a train like this, with back on the engine, faith on the middle car, and feeling on the caboose. We were taught to hook our faith onto the engine. If the caboose follows, great, but a train does not even need a caboose. This has helped me to sit my beliefs and to trust the facts, whether I'm feeling them or not. I'm gonna share some of the facts that have helped me day to day. I've included a few scripture references with each that are representative. They're not exhaustive, and I'm not going to read them all. I just wanted to put them there in case you wanted to look them up later. Number one, God is omnipresent. He's always with me whether or not I'm aware of his presence. I'm learning to think and pray with a new language that reflects that I am confidently aware of his faithful and loving presence And also praying the same thing for others in my life, but who are unaware of his presence. I try to steer away from phrases like, God showed up and the spirit left the room. Because they don't reflect to me that God is present everywhere, all the time. When I was a kid, I had a plaque on the wall in my room that said, say nothing that you wouldn't want to be found saying when Jesus comes. Do nothing that you wouldn't want to be found doing when Jesus comes. Go nowhere. You wouldn't want to be found when Jesus comes. This made me feel as though Jesus was just waiting to catch me doing something rather than acknowledging that he is with me all the time. Two, God is omniscient. He knows everything that's going on. I do not. He is not bound by time like we are, so he knows what is ahead of me. This means I am not a disappointment to God. None of us are. Many of us believe that God sees us as failures and shame is the centerpiece of how we see ourselves. When I say that God isn't disappointed in us, this is hard for me to get my head around. I'm defining disappointment as a result of an unmet expectation or outcome. We expect or imagine that such and such will happen, and when it doesn't, we are disappointed. It's linear within time. That's why God is not disappointed with us. He has no such illusions. He's all-knowing. He's not bound by time. From his perspective, everything happens simultaneously. Even before he created this universe, he knew you and me and everything that we would do or say or think. So it's impossible for him to be disappointed in us. He knows us completely, fully, with unrelenting affection. We can't surprise him with us and for us when we act outside of our identity in him, but that's not because he expected more and was disappointed, it's because he wants the best for us, he is for us, and he knows that we have lost sight of who we are. Our Father's love for and knowledge of each of us is infinite, he's proud of us, he's never disappointed in any of us, we are his beloved children and we are a delight to him. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. I can trust him. Nothing is impossible for him. And and as I get to know him better and further understand how he sees me, I can trust his control more and more. In fact, I used to feel like people who prayed, your will be done, at the end of their prayer, were kind of popping out faith-wise, as though they're making an excuse for their prayer not being answered the way that they thought it should. Now, I know that that's acknowledging that the character of God is good and omnipotent and he knows better than I do, and that's okay. God is love. He's not just loving. Love is, love is not just part of his nature. It is his nature. He isn't part love and part something else. Every aspect of his character is based on his love. He is all about love and relationships. Him loving us, us loving him, everyone loving each other. I want to share a quote with you that I just recently came across from Frederick Fuchner called A Root Called Remember. The final secret, I think, is this that the words, you shall love the Lord your God, become in the end less a command than a promise. And the promise is that, yes, on the weary feet of faith and the fragile wings of hope, we will come to love him at last as from the first he loved us. Loved us even in the wilderness because he has been in the wilderness with us. He has been in the wilderness for us. He has been acquainted with our grief and loving him. We will come at last to love each other. I am forgiven. For every time that i miss the mark, past, present, and future, I'm bathed in grace and built to spill that grace over to others. I'm his child. That's who I am. He loves me as an individual, unique and precious, and our relationship is personal. He's the God who sees me in my joy and in my pain. He doesn't see us as a big group, the same way I don't see everybody I love as a big group. He sees each of us as individuals, and each of our relationships with him will reflect that. In Genesis 16, When Hagar had run away from an abusive situation and she was alone in the desert, she had an encounter with God. Verse 13 says, she answered God by name, praying to the God who spoke to her. You're the God who sees me. Yes, he saw me, and then I saw him. What an awesome way to live, knowing that God sees me and loves me and is working everything out. Something else that God has been teaching me through my journey is to be aware that my perspective, the one that I've grown up with, the one that has been influenced by my life life experiences, the perspective that I have been taught and have taught is not necessarily his perspective. On Labor Day weekend, 21 years ago, my family was planning to go camping. I was busy loading the trailer out in the driveway, and so had turned on the TV for my seven-year-old and two-year-old to keep them busy in the living room. My seven-year-old daughter was also covering. I told her to keep an eye on her brother while I was packing up, and I would check on them every so often. At some point, my daughter discovered that she no longer had her magenta crayon, so she went downstairs and left her brother watching TV. Well, my boys, both of them, have always seemed to have very complex plans that they have in their head, ready to go as soon as an opportunity arises. Brian saw his chance. In just those couple of minutes, he opened the sliding door to the backyard, he turned on the hose, he dragged the sprinkler into the middle of the living room. (laughs) (laughs) And when I peeked in to check on the kids, Brian was sitting on the couch, watching the water spray back and forth. It was dripping off the ceiling and the walls. The TV was going He was quite pleased. From his perspective, this was awesome. You can guess what it looked like from my perspective. I tell you that because not only is it hilarious, but also to illustrate that the perspective of that one little person was not the true perspective of what was going on. Just his view given his experience and knowledge and maybe lack of knowledge. In many ways as humans, as God's children, we are like that little person. Over the years I've been asking God to help me to see the way that he sees and he's been steadily and faithfully doing that. I've been discovering that a lot of my human perspectives have affected the way that I understand his nature and how he sees me. I've been more and more, I've seen more and more throughout my life that God's ways are usually the opposite of our ways. Some of the things that I've taught and believe that the Bible says have been influenced by our Western thinking and by ingrained perspectives that have added things that aren't actually there. I've had to ask myself, What if my experiences and beliefs have led me to believe that God is different than he actually is? What if he actually meant what he said in Isaiah, where we read, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What if I am reading the Bible with tones that are not there? Adding my own perspectives and beliefs to biblical texts and reading it that way. This would totally affect the interpretation. I'm not very good at texting. My kids are really speedy and understand short forms that I don't. I don't even wanna know the short forms because I really like spelling things correctly and it's really hard for me to use single letters as words. However, sometimes I make an attempt, I'd like to say it's because I'm cool, but really it's because I'm a slow typist. A short form is faster because it involves fewer letters. So one day I'm having a text conversation with my daughter and after she told me something, I responded with the letter K. I thought it was pretty cool and faster than spelling O-K-A-Y. The response from her was, why are you angry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not angry, but you just typed K. That was short for okay, but if you just type the letter K, that means you're angry. Well, <laughs> oh, I had no idea, so now I know. I didn't understand the language, and I was acting under that misunderstanding. My daughter read it in anger, but there was zero anger behind it. As you know, part of the problem is that there's no tone in texting either. If someone texts you, where are you, and you believe believe that they are mad at you, you'll read it entirely different than you will if you believe they love you and are concerned about you. You'll read an angry, where are you, instead of a loving, where are you? Well, the Bible doesn't have tone either. However you believe God feels about you will greatly influence how you read it. If you think God is angry at you, that's how you will read it. Most of the time, we actually have no idea how something was said, so we read it with our own beliefs and biases and culture and interpret it accordingly. There's a quote that I like that I often hear hope and that I'm really starting to understand, and that is that God is not a puzzle piece solved, but a mystery to be explored This concept of mystery and not needing to know all the answers is much more familiar to the Eastern mindset than it is to the Western mindset. Our modern-day Western mindset attempts to take what we know or think we know, sometimes adding things born from experience and narrow it down to something that we can grasp easily. When we try to figure out God, we're attempting to put him into boxes so we can better understand. We try to contain him in our minds. And we can't do it. God cannot be contained. He's bigger than the boxes we try to put him into in order to explain him. Instead, we should use what we know as a launching pad into the expanding mystery of who he is. So I'm learning to hold my beliefs and perceptions out to God in an open hand. He's the one to correct what is false and affirm what's true. I'm learning to trust God to show me who he is and how he sees me. Without the safety and control of what I previously thought and believed, I'm choosing to let him be right. I'm making the effort to keep in mind that even in Bible times, Jesus pointed out several times in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you read what I say, showing that our initial interpretation of humans aren't always correct and are often incorrect. It was really scary at first to find out that the things that I believe to be true are not actually what the Bible says when looking at original languages and comparing translations. But now it's exciting. It's humbling. When we overconfidently believe what we believe, it's a real challenge to recognize and acknowledge that we may not have it at all right and to be willing to admit it. We sometimes even fight about different interpretations, which is sad. Instead, I want to keep asking him, what are you really saying? What is your heart on this? Part of the mystery of who God is, is the Trinity. We believe that God Himself is a relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew word that's translated God in this verse is Elohim. It's plural. Which is really important because it tells us right off the bat that there's plurality in his essence. He doesn't abide alone. This relational aspect is the very first thing he tells us about himself. So it needs to be central to how we see and understand him. He is relational. John 1:1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So again, we understand the word as word. Know that that means Jesus and the word and communication again speaks to relationships. I've heard many analogies over the years in an attempt to understand the concept of the Trinity three in one, like an egg is a shell and a yolk and a white, or water can be in the form of a gas, or liquid, or solid. A single person can be a daughter, or a wife, and a mother, and there are lots of them, but none of them is perfect. The truth. Is that we need to grasp that God is first and foremost relational. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always and will always exist in a circle of intimate love. My favorite analogy is that the Trinity is like an intimate dance of relationships. The Father, Son, and Spirit are enjoying each other. They're fulfilled, completely satisfied, and nothing was missing from this relationship. They could have spent eternity simply enjoying each other. There's a Greek word that was introduced in the seventh century to describe this, and it's perichoresis. The first part of the word peri denotes a circle. spilled out to the creation of us. He didn't need us. He wanted us. He wanted us in the eternal now. In the eternal now, I'm not a good dancer. I was raised by parents who grew up in Mennonite and Baptist traditions, so dancing was not something we (laughs) did. I just walked home instead of going to grade seven and eight dances that were held after school. And then came grade eight graduation, after which was a dance, and my mom gave me permission to go. Like almost every other girl in my class that year, I wore a long blue dress. I was so nervous and excited, and I felt a little bit like a wreck. (laughs) Well, I don't know what, what they're like now, but in those days at dances, there were a lot of boys on one side, looking longingly at the girls on the other side of the gym. Some of the girls were dancing together. Eventually, a few of the boys would get up the courage to cross over and ask some of us to dance. Finally, my turn came. One of the neighbor boys with whom I played baseball and road hockey and hide and seek came over and asked me to dance. It was a slow dance. (laughs) The only dance moves I knew were from square dancing in gym (laughs) class. (laughs) But we made our way onto the dance floor and he awkwardly wrapped his arms around me and we danced. It wasn't amazing. I was very self-conscious. We smell like onions.
1: <laughs>
0: and I didn't know what my feet were supposed to do. <laughs> we often do that. Oh, I'm doing laser instead of forward. We often do that when we are invited to the dance of Jesus. Instead of looking up at our partner and letting him lead, we focus on what our feet are doing. Do I have enough faith? Did I do my devotions today? Did I repent of all my sins, omission and commission? Did I love God first and then love others as myself? Am I discovering fulfilling God's purpose for my life? Did I marry the right person, take the right job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We're striving to please Him and feeling guilty that we haven't done enough. Seeing difficulties as proof of having blown it somewhere along the line. Trying to drum up enough love for everybody and failing instead of using His love. Jesus said in John 13, 35 that his followers would be recognized by our love for one another. How's that working out for us? Sadly, we are usually recognized by our great lists of do's and don'ts, not by our love, looking at our feet instead of looking at our partner in the dance. What I'm actually doing is trying to earn what I've already been given. My focus is on me rather than on him. By looking at my feet, I'm trying to maintain control over the relationship. I'm counting on my faith. I am putting my faith in my faith, and I'm learning that I'm seeing it from my own perspective and not his. We almost treat faith like a kind of currency so we can get things from God. Faith doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus. It's way better to lean into his faith than to try to crank out enough of my own 22 in the King James Version refers to the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all. Galatians 2.16 says that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. our focus is on sin when we try to be more righteous that's self effort when we're focusing on trusting him the focus is on who he is and what he's already done not on what we are doing listening to the melody of grace and enjoying the dance of life in him our calling in life is not something to do it's someone to be another way we look at our feet is when we focus on all the hard things that are going on around us instead of on Jesus Peter is a good example of this when he walked on the water. He and the other disciples, you know, were in a boat in the middle of the night and the wind and the waves picked up. They saw Jesus walking on the water toward them and thought it was a ghost. Jesus identified himself, but Peter wasn't sure. So said in Matthew 14, in the passage translation, Lord, if it's really you, then have me join you on the water. Come and join me, Jesus replied. So Peter stepped out onto the water and began to walk toward Jesus. But when he realized how big the waves were, he became frightened and started to sink. The New International Version says that Peter saw the wind. He was afraid he began to sink. But if he kept his eyes on Jesus, he wouldn't have started to sink. So what happened? Peter called up to Jesus. Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Peter redirected his focus to Jesus. Also, many of the Psalms are great examples of what to do in hard times. Many of them start out with complaints and heartfelt cries about very difficult circumstances and yet end with praise. Did the circumstances change between the beginning and the end of the psalm? No. The psalmist looked up and recognized that the character of God isn't changed by our circumstances. He's still good. He's still loves. He's still in control. He still deserves praise. Just because I don't like or understand what I'm going through doesn't change who he is. Psalm 46 was written during a time of war, and yet near the end, we're told to be still and know that I am God. The word that is translated, be still, in most of our translations would be better translated, to cause yourself to let go. Why do we cause ourselves to let go? because we know God. We know that God is God. We know he's loving and good and faithful. We recognize that he's in control. He can be trusted whether or not we can see or understand what he's doing. We can only truly know this if we know him, when we see his glory. Now, growing up, I often talked about, I often heard of God's glory and giving glory to God and glorifying God. But I couldn't have really explained what it meant. It was kind of one of those fuzzy Christian terms that you hear, and I couldn't define it. After researching it, I came to a very simple conclusion, because I prefer simple conclusions, that God's glory is simply who he is, his character. So to give him the glory and to glorify him is to recognize his character and to reflect that. That is, to live like he says we are and to show our identities. Identity. No driver. I wasn't the one in control, so I had to trust the one who was. So how much more can we trust our loving God to get us to our destination? I'm learning to focus on Jesus and who I am in him and to live like that. That's the motivation, to live as the person I am in him. It's his love that compels me to live out my identity in Christ, not guilt, not the church. I'm learning to look up and dance with Jesus and not stare at my feet in self-effort and struggles. I'm focusing on him and who I am in him, not on living the Christian life. He's the one making me right, not me. As I focus more and more on him, I'm more and more motivated to live in a way that honors him, that reflects who I am in him. His glory is reflected through me. I'm learning to.